Welcome to the Beyond Clinical Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Dave Hogan, and I have the honor of being the guest host for this wonderful podcast. And today I have with me someone who I respect considerably, and I am honored also to be able to call him my friend, and that's Dr. John Matheson. John is an emergency physician extraordinaire. He uh, also is the facility medical director at Cadillac Medical Center. Uh, and also is the past president of the Washington American College of Emergency Physicians. And so it's uh, my honor to be able to talk with you today. John, how are you? Doing well. Thank you uh, for your kind words, and uh, I reciprocate those feelings and uh, happy to be able to talk about this important topic. And it is an important topic. Uh, with all the things going on in the world right now, it's hard to sometimes remember these things that are important but are at times easy for us to sort of put behind us. And the topic that we'd like to, to talk about is human trafficking. It wasn't that many months ago that uh, through Team Health we put out a number of videos uh, and continuing medical education points associated with human trafficking and that was received pretty well. Um, and so I thank you for the work that you did on that, John. Well, well, thank you. I'm glad that we were able to get the word out. It's uh, certainly a topic that I think people are becoming more aware of, but for some time it's been kind of in the shadows and I've been very pleased with the response as well. As have I. Um, so at the moment, let's see if we can bring it out of the shadows just a little bit more. Could you take a second and remind everyone what human trafficking is. Certainly. Now, the, the legal definition of human trafficking uh, may vary a little bit from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but it consistently involves the terms that you'll hear again and again, which are force, fraud, and coercion. And we're talking about uh, human trafficking in the labor industry, so people who are being uh, forced to work against their will or ha performing labor uh, by means of force, fraud, or coercion. But also, more commonly, uh, what we talk about is the commercial sex industry, where, again, those who are involved in the commercial sex industry uh, under the guise of force, fraud, or coercion. Uh, now, there is one caveat to that in that any minor who is involved in the commercial sex industry, anybody under the age of 18, regardless of whether there is overt force, fraud, or coercion, by definition, that is human trafficking. So any minors who are uh, involved in commercial sex. And understand that uh, when we talk about that, it's not always the exchange of money. It can be really anything of value, and many are either working or performing sex acts uh, out of desperation, and it may be for a place to live, for a meal, it may be for something as simple as a sandwich that is still a transaction and qualifies as a commercial sex act. Well, human trafficking is not something that most of us as clinicians would think of, and it's certainly not something that they taught us about in medical school. So one of my questions is, how did you personally get involved in this topic? 
Well, I wish I could say that uh, I recognized it early and uh, knew the problem and and uh, went about trying to educate people, but I learned the hard way, as many of us have, um, aware that something about human trafficking was out there, but really uh, hit home when we had a case several years ago of a patient who came in and was being trafficked. And we even had a pretty good idea this was going on. But we hadn't educated ourselves how to deal with it. And we treated her like we did anybody else. And, and she was not unstable. So she was able to wait. And she waited in our waiting room and then was put in a in a back room waiting to be seen and uh, she had even indicated that she might be ready to talk and open up and and we'll discuss a little bit later that that is is an opportunity that doesn't always present itself but anyway she waited and she waited and she waited and we didn't give her the support she needed and and pretty soon she started closing off and no longer felt ready to really open up and talk and was ready to go. And, and we had a, a tragically missed opportunity. And then from that time, uh, became a little bit more aware of it. And then in working with our local law enforcement and some of our local support groups and advocacy groups, we're able to learn about it and, uh, collaborate with them to develop some plans and, and uh, better understanding of it. And, and since then, I've been able to speak to various groups in the community, some of them uh, medically related uh, from private practices to uh, medical societies and even just some community groups about the about it and, and give an opportunity to educate them and really recognize that it is occurring around us and learning that it's occurring pretty much everywhere. We know with my background in epidemiology, you know I'm going to have to ask you specifically, okay. how prevalent is this and where's it, go where's it going on? Well, the, the short answer, very prevalent and everywhere. Um, we know that this is underreported. There are some statistics out there. Uh, the Department of State estimates uh, between 14,500 and 17,500 people per year are trafficked. We believe that to be dramatically underreported and think that the actual number is many times higher than that. Uh, because it is something that's in the shadows, uh, most cases never come to light. We also know that, uh, as I mentioned before, there's labor trafficking and sex trafficking. Sex trafficking is more common than labor trafficking. Females are much more likely to be trafficked than males, although I want to point out that all ages, all genders, all socioeconomic strata can be affected by this, even though some are at higher risk than others. And it really does happen everywhere. I've had the opportunity to travel around the country and speak about this topic. And often what I'll do is uh, look, do a, a Google search before a presentation just to see what news items are out there uh, for specific to that area that relate to human trafficking. And inevitably, I find many stories about it. If you look for it, it, it is everywhere. Some places certainly have uh, a higher uh, prevalence than others, but everywhere I've gone, I've been able to find evidence that it's that it's occurring. 
So what you're telling me, John, is that we've all seen this, whether we've recognized it or not. We know that's the case, uh, much like other issues such as domestic violence and other types of abuse, child abuse. We know that they're coming through our facilities and often we're missing it. Uh, and that's not because we're doing things wrong. Uh, it can be hard to pick up. But I think as we become more aware and, and are looking for it, we're more likely to find it and have a better chance of being able to help some of these people who need it. Well, maybe I can get a better picture of what's going on with this if I have an idea maybe who's at highest risk for this. Sure. And and as I said, and I will repeat, nobody is immune. But when we think about those that have the highest risk, it's those who are most vulnerable. So think about vulnerable populations and those with poor social support, often those who are migrants or who relocated and don't have a strong uh, social network and base are at, uh, are at risk. Uh, those who are, have addictions and are, uh, substance abuse issues can easily be manipulated out of desperation and need for that next high. Um, runaways are, are very vulnerable. Young youth runaways, uh, it's not uncommon within even hours of running away to be approached and contacted and solicited for uh, trafficking. Certainly those with mental health problems, those in the child welfare or um, in the foster programs, uh, they are at risk, as are those who are, experience poverty. Again, they may have need to uh, get the next meal or a place to stay and, and are willing to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. Really, anybody who's disenfranchised, and, and certainly one of those groups is the LGBTQ community, which we also see more vulnerable. But again, it's not isolated just to those. We've seen them from uh, more stable families and higher socioeconomic classes as well. Well, who's doing this trafficking? What what sort of people or groups are involved? Well, we we we'll see a, a, a wide range, and certainly there are what we refer to as pimps who are uh, in the sex trafficking industry. There are employers that are um, using labor trafficking. We see a lot of it in gangs, and historically, we think of gangs as trafficking drugs. And they certainly do, but we think about it, drugs are is a, a resource that they need to uh, uh, replace. So if they sell a drug, then they have to manufacture or obtain more before they can sell more of it. And so the the acquisition and distribution of it is ongoing. Whereas if you have a person who can either work for you or perform uh, sex acts for you again and again and again, maybe dozens of times a day and continue doing so, it's, you don't have to replace that resources frequently. And so it is an economically um, a big business for these gangs. 
sadly, we also see families uh, trafficking each other, even parents trafficking their children. It may be that they grew up in this environment and don't know any better, or as we've said before, there may be some desperate circumstances where they don't feel they have any other options. They may be manipulated in such a way that uh, they don't feel they have a choice. And, and sometimes these traffickers will solicit the help of unknowing participants. I've heard stories of um, traffickers uh, associating or getting to know some of, the, some of the popular kids in high school, maybe. Maybe it's the, the captain of the football team or somebody like that, and, and they will do something that sounds very innocent. Say, hey, we're, we're, we're putting a party together. We want to get some people. We'll pay you so much money for every girl you can get to come to the party because that'll make it more fun. We'll get more people here. And so these young guys do, don't know any better, think that they're just making a quick buck by inviting people to a party and, and, and then they might get exposed. So wide range, but, but we do see a lot that involve the gangs. You know, John, you'd think that people in these horrible situations would walk away and would get themselves out of that. At least that's a lot of times the way many of us think about this. Uh, obviously, that's not happening. Is the kind of control that they're exerting over these people, is this similar to what goes in, on in some of the uh, domestic violence cycles, or uh, are there other aspects to it? Uh, there are many similarities, and and those who are being trafficked often are strongly manipulated, and that may be emotional manipulation. It may be physical. They may um, have the the traffickers take total control over these people's lives. They will isolate them so that they don't have outside contact. They may control their documents, whether it's their driver's license or passport or or other documents. Um, they will build relationships with them. And similar to what we hear about in kidnapping situations with the Stockholm Syndrome, they may form this relationship. Again, this may be a young woman who has come from a very dysfunctional background and to suddenly have somebody who's paying attention to her, who's giving her affection, who's buying her nice things that she's never had before, and suddenly she develops this, this attachment. We call this the Romeo pimp, and will start to do anything that he asks, and then the manipulation gets more and more and more. They, they talk about seasoning these, uh, again, talking about the, the commercial sex industry, and if they're taking young women who maybe have more... Um, more reasonable boundaries, uh, nor normal boundaries sexually, and they're breaking that apart and exposing them, sometimes through rape, sometimes through pornography, um, and, and so forth, into um, breaking those boundaries and doing things that they would never otherwise do. And between the sexual and the emotional abuse, uh, really break them down and, and control them. So during the time that these victims are under human trafficking, uh, it's my understanding that a lot of times the the only contact they may have would be with a clinician, and in particular, maybe a clinician in the emergency health care. Is that true? It is true. Uh, again, these uh, people 
people are being isolated and other than exposure to their their pimps or their traffickers and their clients, uh, the only other reason they may get out is for medical care. And so they they will seek medical care, as you said, often in the emergency department. Uh, but we know from uh, studies and interviews that most of those who have been trafficked have sought some type of medical care at some point during their time of exploitation. In fact, at least two-thirds of them report going to the emergency department during that time. Wow. Where else are these folks being seen? They may be seen anywhere. Certainly, we talked about the emergency department. It may be urgent cares. Sometimes they're ill and need to be admitted or they'll have be injured, may even have to go to the operating room, which actually presents a good time to get them alone, and we can talk about that a little bit more. Um, but really, often the reason that they're seeking care is because whatever their problem is, is making them less marketable or less efficient with what they're doing. So it could be an illness, it could be an injury, or it may be some cosmetic issue. And so we even see them going to dental offices. Uh, and we've actually talked to a number of dental offices about how to recognize uh, these individuals because they're going there for cosmetic reasons. So you've talked to me a little bit about um, who's vulnerable for this and who's at high risk for this. So in the emergency department, for myself, when I'm involved in seeing patients, what sort of clues might there be to help tip me off that the patient that I'm seeing is in a human trafficking situation? Well, this can be difficult uh, because very few are going to come in and say, I'm being trafficked. And many of the clues uh, are somewhat subtle, but patients will often have a very vague story. They may be unaware of their surroundings and, and events because they've been isolated. They're also not going to be as forthcoming with what led up to uh, the condition that brings them there. Or on the other side, they may have a very rehearsed story that they don't deviate from and they say the same thing again and again and again in great detail in that aspect. But if it varies at all or, or you go off topic at all, they become vague again. Again, certainly this is not unique to human trafficking uh, victims, but it is one of those things we'll see. Now, they also what they're coming in for, they may have frequent sexually transmitted infections, complications of unsafe pregnancy. We may see pattern injuries, uh, ligature marks, cigarette burns, other types of injuries. Um, psychologically uh, and emotionally, they may either be anxious or withdrawn. We may see addiction. Um, one thing that is quite common, though, is that they will have a companion with them. It may be the pimp. It may be somebody else who's being trafficked, uh, posing as a family member or even as a family member who controls the conversation, ensures that they don't uh, say more than they're supposed to. And also beware that we don't always know that the person is there. It may be remotely with a cell phone even, but there will be somebody who's controlling them. Uh, they may not have a cell phone when everybody else does, or they may have multiple cell phones. 
Their clothing may be a giveaway if it's particularly provocative or um, particularly if it's a uh, time of year when you would be uh, more covered, warmer clothing and so forth. And you may even see some tattoos or branding. Again, each of these individually is not going to uh, necessarily trigger anything because we see such a broad range of people who are in vulnerable situations and and in various settings. But but that pa- these patterns, if you become more aware of it, you start to recognize, and it just gets the hair on the back of your neck up and makes you think maybe this is, and and then it can prompt further questions and and uh, further investigation to see if maybe this is somebody who needs help. I think it would seem to a lot of people that once we've gotten to the point where we are suspicious of and we've maybe identified somebody that we think is in this situation, um, that we could offer them a way out and they're pretty much going to go along with it? Or is that not the case? Uh, Generally, that's not the case. Uh, These people often don't even consider themselves victims and are not looking for help. Certainly, these are people who have been manipulated and lied to, and so they don't trust authority. And and we in the medical field are considered uh, authority figures. There's just a general lack of trust. There's also a fear, uh, the fear of consequences. Often what they're doing is considered illegal, and they're uh, they're fearful of being arrested. They may be fearful of retaliation from their trafficker. They might have family members, siblings, friends who are involved uh, with them, and they're afraid of losing that relationship or having retaliation against them. Uh, This may be their only way to have a place to stay or to eat, and so they are so dependent on this that they're afraid of losing that. So there are a lot of uh, challenges even to get them to open up or admit that they need help or seek help and certainly to get them to trust you. And and I mentioned companions might be there that are blocking them uh, and and you have to worry about the safety that's involved, but they're often not ready to get help. And another challenge we might have is we may not have thought about it and, and okay, we identify them, but what do we have to offer them? If we're not prepared, what good is it to uh, to ask them about it and offer help if we don't have anything to give them? That's a good point. I mean, uh, if you don't know what to do and what not to do, um, it's going to be very difficult. <laughs> uh, yeah. What kind of pointers do you have for us as far as uh, as, as what we might be able to do once once we really have gotten to the point where we want to try to to intervene or at least help them? Well, what I encourage people to do is to plan ahead before you're faced with this. Because if we have a coordinated plan, then it goes so much more smoothly and we can actually offer them meaningful help. So it requires a lot of coordination with uh, social services, with uh, security personnel at your facility, as well as law enforcement, your clinical team, clinic, uh, community advocates, and and having places to refer these people, whether it's be clinics, uh, shelters, but really this this broad coalition that can work together to help these people. Um, 
when they come in, as I said, they are these are people who have been manipulated. We need to be supportive. We talk about trauma-informed care with those who have been uh, uh, victims of violence, and we don't want to re-victimize them emotionally either. They don't have much control in their life, and it's important that we give them as much control. Let them control what they're willing to say, when they're willing to say it, and really, you know, offer them the resources, give them the education, ensure that we can get some follow-up with them. If at all possible, it's really important to try and get them alone because that's where they're going to talk to us more. Uh, and we have ways that we can do that, whether it's taking them for a, a study or getting some um, paperwork or um, et cetera. There are ways we can get them alone as we do in other situations. Paramount, of course, is keeping our patient and our staff safe. And, you know, one other thing that uh, I've learned that I wouldn't have thought of before has to do with interpreters. Often, if it's uh, somebody, a foreign language speaker, the companion may want to do all the interpreting, and it's important to use a professional interpreter if you suspect it. And one thing as well, in some communities, uh, various... uh, Various groups are very tight-knit, and if you have an interpreter from a close-knit community, even though it's a professional interpreter, they may not be as open to speaking uh, if they think that this person could have a connection to others in the community that they know. And so this is a time when using a remote telephone or video interpreter may be more beneficial than an in-person one. Again, something I learned that I would have never thought of before. Well, John, we're about, and we're all about, for the most part, making a positive difference in the lives of others. That's why we went into clinical medicine. Um, But this is intimidating. If I'm in a facility somewhere that doesn't have a lot of resource in particular, where can I even start in coming together uh, in developing some sort of human trafficking protocol? Great question and, and an important one. We, we need to work together with the resources we have. Certainly get the resources you have at your facility, whether that be social services and security and uh, your clinical team and get them together. If you have community advocates, you want to get them together. A good place to start, though, is Heal Trafficking. Uh, It's a national organization, and it's HealTrafficking.org, and they have uh, a toolkit for how to create a protocol. It can be overwhelming because it's a very extensive uh, toolkit, but it's got some of the steps, and it's a good starting point. So that's Heal, H-E-A-L, Trafficking, all one word, .org. That's correct. Okay. So we've informed a lot of people here today who may have little to no experience in this, but are now very aware of it and may recognize at their very next clinical encounter that they're in the middle of one of these things. So let's suppose that I'm out somewhere and I have very little resource at my location, and I suspect that this is going on, but yet I don't have a protocol or or anything. Is there anything that that clinician can do to try to provide help? Certainly, and there are a number of resources out there. One that I would recommend is the National Human Trafficking Resource Center, and you can call that number. It's 
888-3737-888. And they are available to guide both the clinician as well as the survivor of trafficking. So you can give that number to those who are being trafficked. But if you call them, they can give you some guidance and some suggestions. They might even know some resources that are available in your area. Um, good okay. ideas. If you have not had that, um, if you've not set up a protocol and don't have the resources, give them a call. Uh, and again, that's 888 3737 888. Another resource more for the the victims of trafficking, but you can have them text be free. That's B-E-F-R-E-E. Just be free. And they can text that and it's just and it there will be somebody there who can respond and guide them as well. You know, I've had some feedback along the lines of our earlier education that we put out from a number of clinicians um, expressing their interest and their appreciation for this. but And this is also becoming more of a thing nationally, thank goodness. John, are we making a difference yet? There's a long way to go, but I think we are making progress, at least anecdotally. Uh, now, certainly, I'm more aware of it, so I, I clue into this, but when I started learning about this, it just wasn't out there. It wasn't being talked about the same way. Now I'm seeing it lots of different places. In fact, I was traveling not long ago and and uh, one of the major fast food uh, chains was having a big thing on trafficking and it was Human Trafficking Awareness Month and they had signs and and their servers were wearing pins that said, ask me about human trafficking and, and these, we're seeing more of it out there. I'm being asked about it more and as you say, when we've put some education out there, we're hearing back that it's working, that we're making a difference. Now, there's no doubt we have a long way to go. It's still highly under-recognized we still lack a lot of the resources to deal with it. Um, it's a hard thing to deal with, and it's, it can be overwhelming, but I believe we're making progress. John, I could talk with you forever uh, about this topic and a number of others. Um, but unfortunately, as always, we are limited in our time that we have together. I would like to close with one thing. I would just like to ask you, if you were to sum this all up in just a few statements, what are the absolute most important things that you want people to know who are listening to this podcast about dealing with the survivors of human trafficking? I think uh, first and foremost is consider safety. Consider the safety of that person. Recognize that for them to open up and say something or ask for help, may put them they may be putting themselves at significant risk also consider the safety of you and those in on your medical team but also recognize that these people are survivors uh, they are not always ready to get help but at every every encounter is an opportunity to educate and offer we as clinicians have a tendency to want to diagnose and fix things. We see a problem, we dive in, and we want to fix it immediately. This is where we have to be cautious. We have to step back. 
do it on their terms, their time, where there's a resource and a support, help them on their terms and give them that control. Beware of their safety in your own. Don, I appreciate it. I appreciate the work that you're doing and I appreciate the time that you've spent speaking with me today. Thanks everyone for listening to Beyond Clinical Medicine where we talk about things they don't teach you in medical school. I'm Dr. Dave Hogan, and I've been speaking with my friend, Dr. John Matheson, about human trafficking. I appreciate Dr. Strauss allowing me to be the guest host for this episode and look forward to being able to provide you with some more good topics in the future. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.